Most of us know the story of Robin Hood, I'm sure. It's inspired plenty of films over the years, some recent and some less recent. And if you know the story at all, you know that most of Robin's problems are caused by a guy called Prince John. John acts like he's in charge, but in fact he's not, not really. The true king of England is John's brother, Richard the Lionheart. When Richard went off to fight some battles, he left John in charge temporarily. Prince John is the caretaker, but he acts like he's the king. And that causes all sorts of problems. He turns Richard's kingdom into a place of injustice. And as we turn together to 1 Samuel this morning, we find a situation that has some similarities. In recent weeks, if you've been here, you'll remember we've seen how Israel demanded a king. They wanted a king who would lead them and go out before them and fight their battles. And God gave them the best man Israel had. That's how Saul was described. The first time we were introduced to him, we learnt he was as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. And he was a head taller than anyone else. Then later, when he was presented to Israel, Samuel told them there is no one like him among all the people. In terms of human ability, Saul is the best Israel has. But the text of 1 Samuel is hammering home to us over and over again that human ability is not the key factor. The key factor is using that human ability to serve the true leader of God's people. Saul's calling in life is to be a king under God. He's to be the steward or the caretaker of God's kingdom. But this morning, we're going to see what happens when the caretaker thinks he's the king. If you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 14, we're going to be picking up at verse 24. In the church Bible, that's page 284, or the large print 436, depending on what you've got. What we saw last week was, first of all, the build-up to a pretty significant battle. And we saw that battle being won last week. Before the battle, the Philistines had arrived with a massive army. And they had equipment that was far superior to Israel's. But in the face of humanly impossible odds, God won the battle for Israel. He used Saul's son, Jonathan. Jonathan and his armor bearer set off for a section of the Philistine army. And before they went, uh, Jonathan, in fact, gave a little motivational speech to his fellow servant, the soldier that was going with him. He said, perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. 
And we saw last week that against all human expectations, the Lord did save. Jonathan and his armor bearer killed a few Philistines. Then God sent a panic among the whole Philistine army. They started killing each other. And our passage last time ended with this statement in chapter 14, verse 24. 23, excuse me. Chapter 14, verse 23. So on that day, the Lord saved Israel. The Philistines are no longer a threat. They're beaten. They're on the run. And Israel has a chance to remove the Philistine threat forever. On this day, they could humble the Philistines to the point where they would never again be a thorn in Israel's side. That's the situation. It's a moment of deliverance and opportunity. And it's at this point that Israel's caretaker starts behaving like he's the king. We'll pick up in chapter 14, verse 24, and I'll read down to verse 46. Now the Israelites were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people under an oath saying, cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. The entire army entered the woods and there was honey on the ground. When they went into the woods, they saw the honey oozing out. Yet no one put his hand to his mouth because they feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard that his father had bound the people with the oath. So he reached out the end of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it into the honeycomb. He raised his hand to his mouth and his eyes brightened. Then one of the soldiers told him, Your father bound the army under a strict oath, saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food today. That is why the men are faint. Jonathan said, My father has made trouble for the country. See how my eyes brightened when I tasted a little of this honey? How much better it would have been if the men had eaten today some of the plunder they took from their enemies. Would not the slaughter of the Philistines have been even greater? That day, after the Israelites had struck down the Philistines from Michmash to Aijalon, they were exhausted. They pounced on the plunder and, taking sheep, cattle, and calves, they butchered them on the ground and ate them, together with the blood. Then someone said to Saul, Look, the men are sinning against the Lord by eating meat that has blood in it. You have broken faith, he said. Roll a large stone over here at once. Then he said, Go out among the men and tell them, Each of you bring me your cattle and sheep and slaughter them here and eat them. Do not sin against the Lord by eating meat with blood still in it. So everyone brought his ox that night and slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first time he had done this. Saul said, let us go down and pursue the Philistines by night and plunder them till dawn. And let us not leave one of them alive. Do whatever seems best to you, they replied. But the priest said, let us inquire of God here. So Saul asked God, shall I go down and pursue the Philistines? Will you give them into Israel's hand? But God did not answer him that day. Saul therefore said, come here all you who are leaders of the army. 
And let us find out what sin has been committed today. As surely as the Lord who rescues Israel lives, even if the guilt lies with my son Jonathan, he must die. But not one of them said a word. Saul then said to all the Israelites, You stand over there. I and Jonathan my son will stand over here. Do what seems best to you, they replied. Then Saul prayed to the Lord, the God of Israel. Why have you not answered your servant today? If the fault is in me or my son Jonathan, respond with Urim. But if the men of Israel are at fault, respond with Thummim. Jonathan and Saul were taken by lot, and the men were cleared. Saul said, cast the lot between me and Jonathan, my son. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the end of my staff, and now I must die. Saul said, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan. But the man said to Saul, should Jonathan die, who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Never. As surely as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he did this today with God's help. So the man rescued Jonathan, and he was not put to death. Then Saul stopped pursuing the Philistines, and they withdrew to their own land. This is God's word. You may have noticed the opening line of this passage doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem to fit. We saw a few moments ago that chapter 14, verse 23, told us about a day of success. On that day, the Lord saved Israel. And yet the very next verse tells us, now the Israelites were in distress that day. Why? Because Saul had bound the people under an oath saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. We know Saul did not take the initiative in this battle. His son Jonathan had started the attack. But once it kicked off, Saul led his troops into the battle. And now we discover that as he led them in, he bound them with a bizarre command. They were not to eat food for the whole day until evening. And as a result of Saul's command, the Israelites spent the day in distress. It's a distress that's caused not by their enemies, but by their own leader. Why would Saul give that command? What's the thinking behind it? Well, there was nothing at all in God's law that called for this. This is Saul's idea. It's not God's word. It's Saul's word. And Saul seems to have forgotten that he's leading God's army for God's honor against God's enemies. He says, no one is to eat before I have avenged myself on my enemies. Saul has forgotten he's the caretaker. He started to believe he's the king. And he wants to use this situation to get some glory for himself. And the result 
is that deliverance gets turned into distress. Saul is looking to his own wisdom and his own word. His goal is his own victory. And the result is distress for the people around him. A few weeks ago when we looked at Samuel anointing Saul, we saw that Saul was given a unique responsibility. He was to lead God's people under God. But we also thought about the wider application of that. We reminded ourselves that this whole earth is God's estate. All of it is his kingdom. And each one of us has been given something to caretake. It might be time. In fact, for all of us, it is time. Money, family, a job. Maybe we have academic abilities. Maybe we have particular physical skills. All of us have been entrusted with some part of God's estate. None of us will ever command an army, probably. Very few of us will ever lead an organization. But we are all caretakers of something. And so we all face the temptation. The temptation of starting to think we're the king or the queen. How do we know if we're starting to slide into that? If we do some work or some service and then we go into a sulk because we don't get enough recognition for it. If we can't bear for other people to disagree with us. We take ourselves and our wisdom so seriously that we get angry when people don't fall in line behind us. But God is the wise one. He's the great one. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, Any honors that come our way are only stolen from him to whom alone they really belong, the Lord who sent us. He's the king. And when you and I forget that, It leads to all sorts of distress for us and also for those around us. So it's worth asking ourselves, how many of my problems this past week, how many of my frustrations were actually caused by forgetting who's the king? How much distress have I caused for others by forgetting who's really king? Saul has forgotten that he's the caretaker. He has imposed his own word on this situation instead of God's word. And as a result, not only is there distress, what also happens is that an opportunity is missed. As the Israelites chase after the Philistines, they enter a forest area. It must be an area that's full of wild bees Because there's honey all over the ground. It's almost as if God has led the Israelites this way so they can be refreshed by the honey. It looks, doesn't it, like God's provision 
Here is an instant energy hit for these soldiers. Just what you need on a long distance run after the enemy. Just what you need to keep going and achieve greater victory. But Saul's word forbids it. And verse 26 says, none of the Israelites dared to touch the honey. None except Jonathan. Remember, when Saul gave this command, Jonathan was already in the battle. He had started the battle. So he doesn't know the honey is off limits. And verse 27 says, Jonathan had not heard that his father had bound the people with the oath. So he reached out the end of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it into the honeycomb. He raised his hand to his mouth and his eyes brightened. Then one of the soldiers told him, your father bound the army under a strict oath, saying, cursed be anyone who eats food today. That is why the men are faint. Jonathan said, my father has made trouble for the country. See how my eyes brightened when I tasted a little of this honey. How much better it would have been if the men had eaten today some of the plunder they took from their enemies. Would not the slaughter of the Philistines have been even greater? See how there's a ripple effect from Saul's wrong perspective. He forgets that he's only the caretaker. He thinks this victory is for him. And the result is, not only are the Israelites in distress because of their exhaustion, what would have been a great victory becomes only a partial victory. The Israelites just run out of gas. Petrol. Most of the Philistines get away. And Jonathan sees the bigger picture. He says, my father has made trouble for the country. Why? Because this enemy that's been allowed to escape will come back to hurt Israel. And sure enough, the very last verse of chapter 14 tells us that all the days of Saul, there was bitter war with the Philistines. Saul's grand ideas about himself and his own glory have resulted in a missed opportunity for God's people. And it gets worse. Because they obey Saul, the Israelites end up disobeying God. Obedience to Saul means that God is sinned against. Verse 31 That day, after the Israelites had struck down the Philistines from Michmash to Aijalon, they were exhausted. They pounced on the plunder, and taking sheep, cattle, and calves, they butchered them on the ground and ate them, together with the blood. Then someone said to Saul, Look, the men are sinning against the Lord by eating meat that has blood in it. Apparently, the distance from Michmash to Aijalon was at least 20 miles. And it was across hills. So the Israelites have spent this day doing the equivalent of a marathon fell run with breaks for cage fighting along the way. By evening, they're too ravenous to even think straight. And so they break one of the oldest laws in Israel. As far back as Noah, God had commanded, you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And that command was repeated.
repeated numerous times in God's law. Why is that important? Well, blood had a special part to play in God's plan for the world. Blood symbolized life. The shedding of blood was the giving of life. And from the very beginning, God wanted his people to begin learning that it's through the blood of another that their life would be saved. That lesson would prepare Israel finally to understand Jesus' death on the cross. Poured out blood was a special thing. It had very great significance. And so it was to be treated as special. Meat was supposed to be drained of blood before it was eaten. And yet here, because the Israelites have doggedly obeyed their caretaker king, not to eat until the evening, then when it hits evening, they're so hungry they eat the stuff raw. And amazingly, Saul acts like he's the Holy One. He says at the end of verse 33, you have broken faith. And yes, the people did sin, but Saul bears the greatest responsibility. Because of his position, his word had great authority. We've seen that. And obeying Saul's word led the people into sin. Again, can you see how this is producing one ripple after another? The Israelites have been distressed. The enemy has escaped. And now sin has been committed. And all because Saul forgot he was the caretaker instead of the king. It reminds me of that rhyme. For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. For want of a rider, the message was lost. For want of a message, the battle was lost. For want of a battle, the kingdom was lost. And all for the want of a horseshoe nail. Except in this case, what was missing was not a nail. It was a proper understanding of who was truly king. When Saul got that wrong, everything went wrong. And it's the same for us. When we act like we're the king or we're the queen, we end up leading others into sin. We lead them away from the true king. And we leave a trail of hurt and missed opportunities for God's kingdom. The way back for us is to confess our sin, to turn back to the true king and give him his proper place as king. That's the way back. But Saul refuses to take it. And as a result, his authority is lost. In these next verses, the people begin to see that Saul has distanced himself from God. And as they realize that, we'll see the people withdrawing themselves from Saul. Until finally they end up defying him. 
his authority as a leader has effectively been lost by the end of this passage. But we pick up this final section in verse 36. And it turns out that although his army has been chasing and fighting all day long, Saul himself is apparently fresh as a daisy. We might wonder if all of that is down to his great physical strength. Or if Saul had broken his own rule and stopped for a few shots of honey himself. In any case, he says in verse 36, Let us go down and pursue the Philistines by night and plunder them till dawn. And let us not leave one of them alive. Do whatever seems best to you, they replied. But the priest said, Let us inquire of God here. So Saul asked God, Shall I go down and pursue the Philistines? Will you give them into Israel's hand? But God did not answer him that day. Notice it's the priest who has to raise the issue of inquiring of God. And when it's raised, Saul is willing to go along with it. But God is not. We're not told how exactly Saul inquired. The point is, God is not playing ball. Saul has shown no respect for God's word up to this point. And so his opportunities to hear God's word are running out quickly. God is silent. But notice how Saul interprets God's silence. He thinks God is silent because someone else has sinned. Verse 38. Saul therefore said, Come here, all you who are leaders of the army, and let us find out what sin has been committed today. As surely as the Lord who rescues Israel lives, even if the guilt lies with my son Jonathan, he must die. But not one of them said a word. That little phrase translated, he must die, is literally, he will surely die. And if that rings a bell, it's because it was first used in the second chapter of the Bible. God said to the first man, Adam, in the Garden of Eden, if you disobey me, you will surely die. And throughout the Old Testament law, that phrase is used the same way. It's those who disobey God's command who will die. But look what Saul does. Now it's the person who disobeys Saul's command who deserves to die. He thinks he's the king. And notice too how the people are slowly backing away from Saul. They know about Jonathan and the honey, but they're keeping quiet. Their allegiance is not with Saul anymore. In any case, Saul prays again, and he goes through a process of drawing lots. Probably that was done by putting two stones into the priest's bag, one light-colored stone and one dark. And they had names, Erim and Thummim. The idea was you drew out one stone from the bag, And depending on the color and depending on what you decided beforehand, that was your answer to whatever question you were asking. So it goes through that process with his top officials and it narrows down pretty quickly to Jonathan. And we might wonder, well, was this result from God? 
Well, in fact, this was a recognized procedure that God used in the Old Testament. It is significant, though, that after the day of Pentecost in the New Testament, it's never used again. So it was a way that God guided his people before he sent his Holy Spirit to live in his people. Now, today, we're led by God's Spirit, not by the process of drawing lots. But back in 1 Samuel, there's every reason to believe then that this is from God. But it's not saying what Saul thinks it's saying. It's not endorsing Saul's idea. Saul thinks this is going to lead him to the sinner. But God is not pointing to the person who sinned. God is bringing this situation to a confrontation. Remember what's going on. Saul was anointed to be king of God's people under God. A caretaker king. But he has set himself up as the king. He's put forward his word as the authoritative word. And now God is going to take Saul's authority away. By pointing to Jonathan, God is bringing this to a head. Saul wants to know who disobeyed his command. And God tells him. And then we read in verse 43, Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the end of my staff, and now I must die. Saul said, May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan. But the man said to Saul, Should Jonathan die? He who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Never. As surely as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head shall fall to the ground. For he did this today with God's help. So the man rescued Jonathan, and he was not put to death. This is effectively the end of Saul's authority in Israel. The people suddenly say, you've gone far enough, Saul. You've done enough damage today. You're not going to kill the savior that God has given us. Jonathan did this today with God's help. Literally, he worked with God today. And you want to kill him, Saul? Never. It's not going to happen. Saul's authority was only legitimate as long as he recognized his place in the scheme of things. He's here to serve God, not to set himself up as God. And the difference between God and Saul is that God's word always prevails. Saul's doesn't. According to Saul's word, Jonathan must die. But Saul's word falls to the ground on this occasion. He can't make it happen. Saul's word caused a lot of distress and sin this day in Israel. But ultimately, Saul's word cannot prevail. Because ultimately, he's not the king. Saul's life is a warning to us. No matter what position we might have, no matter what title we might be given, no matter how much we love to have our say and assert our authority, 
No matter how wise or important we might think we are, none of us is king. We're caretakers of a little part of God's estate. And when we forget that, we're in trouble. When you or I act like the Lord or the Lady of the Manor, whether that's in our living room at home, in front of our family, whether it's among our co-workers or in church, once you or I start to strut around, dishing out our word like it's the word, then we're in trouble. And we cause no end of trouble. Saul is here to warn us. We're caretakers. We answer to God. But Saul's here for a second reason. He's here ultimately to point us to God's true king. Saul was the best candidate Israel had. We've seen that. Saul did not fail because he lacked the human credentials. He failed because he was human and only human. Saul was flawed and sinful like the rest of us. He couldn't be the savior king that Israel needed. God had told Israel that before he gave them Saul. But they insisted and God let them learn the hard way. Only God could lead them and fight their battles. Every other savior would let them down. And every other savior will let you down. Whoever or whatever it is. And that includes yourself. You can't be your own savior. But the Bible tells us that one day God himself came as Israel's savior. And not just Israel's savior. God the son came to earth to save men, women, and children from every nation, tribe, people, and language. That's what he came to do, and he did not fail in his mission. He did not defy the Father who sent him. Jesus came to die, and he was obedient all the way to death, even death on a cross. And on the cross, he triumphed over the enemies of God and God's people. And therefore, the New Testament tells us, God exalted him to the highest place. Today, Jesus reigns at the Father's side. And it is our privilege to be caretakers of his kingdom. So let's ask God to give us joy and contentment in serving our king instead of trying to be king ourselves. We're going to close by singing Crown Him with Many Crowns. <laughs>